respect, autonomy, and grace. Hello, hello, hello. You are listening to the Brave Files podcast, and I'm your host, Heather Vickery. Welcome back. I am so glad to have you here with us today. Before we get started, I want to remind you that the doors are open right now for my incredible coaching experience, The Incubator. It's a 16-week intensive group coaching experience that is here specifically for people who are sort of in that void, ready for transformation, no longer who you used to be and not quite who you're going to be. We are combining all of the energetic work, the type A systems, the brave method, accountability, structure, system support, and real deep down dirty self-work to absolutely change your life in 16 weeks. If you are curious or want to know more, visit vickeryandco.com slash incubator. I am specifically here to help you learn to like and trust yourself because once you have a foundation of liking and trusting yourself, you can do anything. All right, folks, today's conversation is just one of the most beautiful conversations I have ever, ever had. I had the absolute privilege of talking to Jewel Arney who is a Black, queer, neurodivergent person. Jewel shares their incredible story of struggling with mental health and coming out, but also learning to love themselves in such a magical, beautiful way. Their opulence, and it's a word that comes up in the conversation, is absolutely magical. And I, I got to tell you, you know, this conversation really moved me. It lit me up. It gave me an awful lot of hope. Justice is not always compassionate, but there is still compassion at the root of our human existence. And while we might not be able to see growth and change in this moment, it is there and it is moving. It's alive. And folks like Jewel really give me so much hope. This is a beautiful conversation. Let's get going. You're listening to The Brave Files, where we share stories from people who've stepped out of fear and into bravery in every possible way. What we know for sure is that when we choose bravely on purpose, we choose bigger, we win bigger, and it's contagious. It's our hope that these stories connect with you and encourage you to embrace bravery in every possible way, day after day. Together, we can build a movement that enriches both our lives and our communities. The Brave Files is brought to you by Vickery & Co., a success and leadership coaching firm dedicated to helping you build a life and a business that you are absolutely in love with. Vickery & Co. offers group programs, membership communities, one-on-one coaching, VIP days, corporate trainings, workshops, keynote speaking, and so much more. Visit vickeryandco.com to get all the details. Hey, everybody. It's Heather Vickery. Welcome back to the Brave Files podcast. First, let me just go ahead and tell you, yes, it's me. And yes, I sound like kind of a permanent sexy hangover voice or somebody who's been smoking a pack a day. Neither of those things are true. I'm recovering from a cold. Bear with me, though. I could not pass up the opportunity to spend some time with today's guest. Folks, the world has often made today's guest feel less than, wrong, flat out broken, As a Black, queer, neurodivergent person, Jewel Arney has had to combat these external narratives, and they have unwittingly taken seed, and they root subconsciously, and they infiltrate everything. 
The struggles that result from this type of lived experience cannot be understated, and yet Jewel now lives, I like to call it an out loud life that helps others see themselves for the magic that they are as is. And Jewel helps these folks choose to live. I love that when I was doing prep for this, Jewel said, I am now proudly out as genderqueer and showing up in the world as my full self. I choose to be authentic and to act always in a way that I'm acknowledging my own truth. I'm super excited to connect with you. Jewel, welcome to The Brave Files. Thanks so much, Heather. It's great to uh, e-meet you. (laughs) I know. We've been e-meeting. We have to give a shout out to mutual friend Pamela Stamper, um, past guest here on the show, friend and client of mine, uh, who said, you two have to know each other. And I feel like that worked out really well for both of us. So thanks, Pam. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jill, you, I wish folks could see you. They'll be able to see your picture and some of the things we show. You have this glow about you, this radiance that just sort of comes through, the smile and these shiny eyes. And, you know, I think that wasn't maybe always what the world saw when they looked at you. Can you share with us a little bit of the backstory Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, as a kid, I I grew up in a couple of different places. I uh, was born in Detroit. We lived there till I was 10. And then we moved to Indianapolis, lived there till I was 14. And then I I went to high school in this. Indianapolis. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Pike Township. (laughs) Um, And then uh, I went to high school in the suburbs of Atlanta. So, there were many different contexts that I had Um, and definitely some, uh, a bit of culture shock as well, moving from the Midwest to the South. But through all of that, you know, one thing that I can say is that my parents were really consistent in always putting my sister and I first, really prioritizing our well-being, um, which is really great and really needed as a Black person moving into increasingly white spaces. You know, growing up in Detroit, it was very, very Black. Um, And I was surrounded by all of these, you know, successful Black people, my parents included, um, and it felt very normal. But as we started to venture away from those more heavily Black spaces, Mm -hmm. I found myself feeling increasingly alone. And that's just the part of my race that doesn't even begin to touch um, the experience of understanding my sexuality as being queer and then eventually understanding my gender as also being queer. And so there were many times, including in middle school, I actually was uh, selected by my mom's employer at the time, which was Simon Malls. Oh my gosh, um, my that's this is weird. My aunt has worked for Simon Malls for forty years, like for Deborah Simon, like she's Deborah's yeah. assistant. I wonder if they wow. know each other or they did. <laughs> but yeah, they had a uh, competition. They wanted to feature Simon kids, like kids of Simon employees, yeah. in their next marketing campaign, and I was selected as one of the kids. And so my face, along with, I believe, six other kids, we were like all hunched over this camera. So it's like a circle of our faces. I was selected as part of that marketing. And so, you know, back at middle school, you know, this is back when people still went to the malls. I know. Uh, so, some of the so kids, we used right? to you. I'm a lot older right. than you, but nonetheless, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would go, oh, I saw your face, right, on these things. And they're like, Wow. They must have really not had anyone to pick from if they selected your ugly self. Right. So 
so they are so as you can imagine it really kind of undermined um what would have otherwise been uh something that was really validating in that me being seen as attractive as being something that can be associated with beauty and you know that really only escalated after high school not only in that kind of sense of you're ugly but you're wrong right being attracted to uh men was wrong so was it wrong i know it was wrong globe like it wasn't wrong it was never wrong but society told us it was wrong was it wrong in your family yes so you know part of the way that my parents helped to make sure we had some sense of stability aside from um, making sure we had dinner together every night and sat at the dinner table and like talked yeah. was uh, going to church. Um, and that was one of the ways that we were able to be connected to other black families, especially as, you know, we moved into increasingly white spaces. Um, that was one of the consistent connectors to black American culture and seeing other people like me, um, which was really great. But of course, uh, a lot of those churches, I'm sure many people are not going to be surprised were very homophobic. Um, It was a very constant uh, reminder that folks like me are going to hell. This association and thought that people who are queer are predators, which is not Not the case. No, of course not. And so, you know, I had a lot of internalized homophobia and transphobia, and it actually took me three times to come out to my parents because of how, how strong and negative the reaction was. Um, and I was afraid. So can we unpack that just a little? When you say, because of how strong the reaction was, did you start to have the conversation and you could instantly feel the pushback and you were like, never mind, I'll do it later? Or was it an internal pullback before you got into the point where you were telling your parents? Yeah, no, it was very much coming out saying, I like boys. And they're being like, oh, you're just confused. It's a phase. And I wouldn't. Right. And I'll never forget the first time this all happened. Uh, It did not go well. And my dad eventually went to his room and grabbed the family Bible and literally said it's Adam and Steve or Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Um, And, you know, at first I kind of held my ground. Um, And then I did kind of backtrack a little bit. I was like, maybe I'm by, maybe that'll be more acceptable. Yeah. They weren't having that either. And it was like a couple of days later my dad was driving me up to my high school because we were going on the uh, annual band trip and um, to Florida. And of course, we stay in hotel rooms and share space. And on our way there, I remember my dad saying, well, if you feel this way, then you really shouldn't be rooming with boys. And maybe we shouldn't even let you go on this trip. And I just remember feeling so humiliated. And I just turned to him and said, I, I made it up, you know, and just completely... Uh, rolled it back. Wow. Because, you know, I was already dealing with lots of rejection at school in general. And, you know, the, the last thing, the thing that terrified me most was the idea of losing that very consistent love and affection I had always received yeah. from my parents. Yeah, that fear is really real. And that comment by your dad really feeds into that sexual predator Storyline. Yes. I mean, I didn't come out till I was 38, but prior to that, I've shared rooms with men and women, and that did not mean that there was anything physical going on. Just because you're attracted to one gender exactly. does not mean that you're attracted to everyone of that gender or that you have no self-control. Exactly. Or, 
Um, man, that's exactly. tough. That's I can't imagine as a parent hearing why well, I made it up and then just being able to go, I guess because you want it to be true so badly to go. That part. Um, oh, great. Gosh. Yeah. I'm sorry you felt like you had to lie to us about that. Do you need more attention? Should we pet you more and tell you you're pretty or whatever? You know? <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's very much that, right? Um, and, you know, having to do that or at least feeling like I had to do that really had a very big impact on my yeah. mental health. And that was actually that year, that was my freshman year of high school, was the first time that I had made a plan. I had written letters uh, to my mom, dad, and sister, and had planned to take my own life. I knew that my parents had a gun in our apartment somewhere because we had just moved uh, to Georgia. And I was able to find the bullets, but I couldn't find the gun. And I remember being so frantic, going through the entire apartment, trying to find this gun because I knew I also had limited time before they would come back. And I ended up basically making a promise to myself after that, saying, you know, okay, we're going to keep these letters and we're going to put them away. I, I put them in a yearbook that I had. And if I can make it to graduation, mm-hmm. I will give them these letters. Because it wasn't really clear in the letter. It was really more of a, an expression of love as well as, yes, I am leaving, but very vague in the mm-hmm. leaving. So could be parlayed into me going off to college. Okay. Um, interestingly, I think my mom very much started to suss that out because after reading the letters uh, after my senior year, because I had forgotten that they were in there. And I just handed it to them without remembering the context. And mom was like, when did you write this? Why did you say certain things? And I just kind of, you know, dodged it pretty much. Wow. It, you know, it, it wasn't until my junior year after I was still very much struggling with suicidal ideation, but had not made a plan again um, or anything like that, but very much having really obvious signs uh, of depression, especially to my friends, that I decided to send myself to therapy. Uh, I've been an overachiever my whole life, part of that being driven by, I used to think to myself, well, if I'm perfect in every other way, maybe they'll still love me. And so that was kind of my drive of, okay, if I do all these other things, right, then maybe they'll be able to just overlook this and not let it be a big deal. And so when it came to figuring out the therapist, I knew I needed to find a place that I could get to on my bike, that I could afford the copay myself, that it would be inside of our insurance. So I did all of that research. Uh, There's actually an episode of Modern Family where the middle child, Alex, does this exact same thing. And my parents cackled when they saw the episode. They're like, oh, my God, you totally did this. And I was like, I sure did. I came up and I was like, I need to see a therapist. They're like, "Okay, but how are you going to get there? How are you going to find one? I was like, oh, I already did all that. Here's the person. Um, They can meet on these days at this time. I can ride my bike there. They're like, oh, well, okay then. And what they didn't know is that I was intentionally seeing this therapist so that I could come out yeah. without falling back into the closet. I guess this was between my sophomore and junior years. Incidentally, when we finally got to a place where I was like, okay, I would like to do it here so that we have a mediator. 
um, so that I can feel more secure and standing my ground. And she's like, okay, let's just do it our next session. I didn't really look at the date and did not realize it was also my sister's birthday. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> yeah. So when we get to that session, uh, I, you know, it takes me a while to get the words out of my mouth. There's a long period of silence. Um, and when I do, my mom just starts crying and my dad immediately turns to the therapist and is like, what have you been telling him? Oh, this, that, and the third. And as we left, my mom was just like, how dare you ruin your sister's birthday? And I was just like, ugh. Great. But the reason I had also picked that date is it was the day before I was leaving for band camp. So I would be out of the house for a whole week. Yeah. <laughs> so there was some Safety. strategy. I just missed mm-hmm. the actual dates. <laughs> wow. But, you know, they they did struggle. Um, they did per the recommendation of our pastor, oh. send me to a Christian counselor after that to oh. fix me. I got lucky in that this Christian counselor in our first individual session was like, so it would be unethical for me to try to change anything about your sexual orientation. And I don't intend to, so we can just use these sessions however you want. So I really lucked out um, in that part of the process. Right. And, you know, there were a lot of bumps in the road during that time. They were like, you can't have boys over to which I scoffed. When have I ever had people over? (laughs) You think I have friends? Um, Uh, It wasn't until my senior year, they didn't know that I had been dating a boy from another high school, my same age, he was a band nerd like me. And I decided, all my friends, of course, knew, I decided that I was going to take my boyfriend to my senior prom because who else would you take as a person that you're dating? Yeah, of course. What year was this? I'm curious. This was 2006. Okay. Um, That did not go over well. I I took a while to tell my parents, my my parents kind of freaked out. My mom was like, it's like you want everyone to know. It's like, mom, they call me nigger faggot in the hall. I think they know. Um, um, And so it wasn't really until I hadn't even really told them about all the fights, like not physical fights, just the resistance that I was getting from the school among lots of things. But most specifically, because he went to a different high school, I had to purchase his ticket. And when you buy a ticket, they asked for your date's name. Mm-hmm. And when I said, Andrew, the PTSA person was like, Andrea? And I'm like, girl, don't do this. And so there was a whole hoopla. They were like, well, I don't think we can sell you this ticket. If it's a boy. And I'm like, why should... Oh, absolutely. I, honestly, and, but in I was Georgia? Bullied. Were you in Georgia? Yes. I mean, it yes. would have probably been bad in Indianapolis, too. I don't mean to... I just was an yeah. adult with two kids, but I... T- 2006 and mm-hmm. I just oh man it's so really like for going. context 2004 was uh, Bush's W W's re-election oh, that's true and that was fully on an anti-gay campaign right yeah. that was the main reason that he garnered as much black vote as he did wow. from specifically black church members so and that was very much my reality yeah I was the only black kid in any of my AP courses, which the counselors would, I wanted to take, I think it was five or six AP courses. And they're like, isn't that a bit too much? And I was like, literally everyone in my exact class, because there was only one class for the one math I was taking. I was like, all of us are doing this. Why is it that you're concerned about me? 
And they literally said to me, fine, you're going to have to have your parents sign off on this. And when you fail, don't come crying to us. So when I came, so the end of the semester, when I got straight A's, right? Yeah. Oh, I walked in with my report card. I was like, could you run that by me again? What was that? I was Would you like to call my parents? Fail. <laughs> right. Are you concerned that I'm not going to be able to handle this? But yeah, outside a band, I was the only black kid in all of my classes. Uh, yeah. And I can only think of maybe one, well, a visibly black teacher. Um, there was one who was from the Dominican Republic. Uh, outside of that, all my other teachers were white. Yeah. I, I um, recently saw some question somewhere, like how many black teachers have you had? Now, I will be 48 tomorrow, mm-hmm. and I have... Oh, happy early birthday. Oh, thanks. Um, I have a bachelor degree. So I was in school, not for a really long time, but for a long time, longer than, I guess, lots of Americans. And including my college professors, the only black teacher I ever had was my third grade teacher. Mm. Ever. Yeah, you know, I I actually got really lucky. And when we lived in Detroit, my parents sent me to a charter school and it was all black. um, With the exception of my third grade teacher. Representation really matters. And we actually, you know, our teachers went out of their way to teach us things that really weren't covered, especially when it comes to Black American history. So I had a lot more knowledge and exposure um, than I would say some of my other friends who were uh, also Black in similar situations, uh, their access to that, which in, in a lot of cases, yes, they did get some of that information from their parents. But again, it was always it was always something separate because it was never discussed in school. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's still such a relevant conversation as the conservative right doesn't want to teach mm-hmm. critical race. I just the whole, I can't, I, yeah. I we could turn, we could yeah. do several podcast episodes about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I was, you know, when they tried to reject me yeah. buying I mean, the ticket, I do want to know, did Andrew go to prom? I do. Yes, yes. All so right. the principal stepped in, and thankfully I already knew the principal was going to have my back because earlier that year, I was vice president of the school's Gay Straight Alliance, and we had decided to get some t-shirts made by our tech ed department. All it had was an equal sign on the front, like it's a human rights campaign, right? And on the back it said, Walton High School. Gay Straight Alliance, 2005-2006, right? Nothing crazy. When our club president went to the tech ed teacher to request for the shirts to be made, he said, I'm not going to make these shirts because you are all, you know, psychologically unwell and you're going to hell. He told us that she was going to hell. Oh, my God. And so our club sponsor, who was my AP Lit teacher, who could not be out because in the state of Georgia, you could be fired for being gay. Yeah, still, still Um, probably. But, you know, I sensed it. I mean, he was also the color guard coach, (laughs) right? He's an AP lit teacher. He's the sponsor for the Gay Straight Alliance, the Poetry Club, the Young Democrats Club, right? (laughs) Um, But uh, he went up to the principal read him his rights, and the principal called the teacher in, and he read him his rights. And he said, if you ever talk to a student like that again, it's your job. <laughs> um, so principal. I knew he would have my back, yeah. right? And that was great. But then, and our prom was on St. Patrick's Day. Don't get me started. <laughs> um, and uh, two nights before prom, which was five days after my 18th birthday, I got 
a set of phone calls from the parents of my friends that I was going to prom with. Because I was going with a bunch of my band friends. Some of them had already met Andrew. And they're like, of course you're taking your boyfriend. Duh. But once their parents heard about this, they called me two nights before prom to disinvite him from the after party and the pre-picture party. Oh, the limo. In the limo. Stating, oh, we don't we don't really know him. And I'm like, you okay, first of all, the person who's opening his house is my friend's dad, who she does not live with. I have never not once met him, ever. So this is You don't know any of us. Um, Yeah. Right. And also there were other folks in the group who were also bringing in dates who did not go to our school and their parents did not know. So I'm very distraught. Like everything is up in the air. And I didn't even know whether I could actually talk to my parents about this. Because I've been hiding a lot of that prejudice and discrimination I was experiencing because I didn't feel like they would take my side. And so I took a risk because I was very distraught. And I sat on the bed with my mom and I told her. And I remember she just kind of looked over towards her nightstand for a minute. And I was like, oh, crap, she's going to take their side. And instead, she just turns around to me and goes, what are their addresses? Because I'm about to roll up. How dare they tell my son he can't Mama, enjoy his senior prom, right? Mama Bear came out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we had a few conversations and, you know, she was like, you know, actually, I've known since you were three. And I'm like, well, then what was the problem? Why do you make this so and, hard, Mama? And she said, well, you know, to be honest, you know, it's hard enough living in this world as a black person. And as a parent, I don't want my child's life to be harder. And I know, right? Gay people are killed, right? And I don't want that for you. And so selfishly, if there was any way that you could be different and have less of that barrier, less of that risk, um, I wanted to seek that out. But no, I, I know this is you and I'm sorry it took us this long to get here. That's beautiful. I mean, it's really honest, right? Mm-hmm. Mothers, um, parents, mm-hmm. we we don't want our children to face any more struggles than they're already bound to face. Uh, mm-hmm. I am super white. I have no idea what it would be like to be a black woman in America and a black mother in America and a black mother of a black son in America. Mm-hmm. So I won't presume mm-hmm. to know how she was feeling, but I can imagine that that fear was really strong. Um, mm-hmm. And I love that she was ready to roll on out. Did she get, what happened? Okay, what, we got, we got to wrap <laughs> this up because, but what the fuck happened? Yeah, night. so my mom's, my mom grew up in Detroit. <laughs> I am absolutely She was like, Georgia's not, not ready for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm not giving you addresses. You're going to go to jail. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she gave me some money to get my car cleaned up so that we could go by ourselves. All of my friends the very next day, apologize. They're like, we did not know our parents were going to do that. You, of course, know we're totally fine with you bringing me your boyfriend. Um, and so I was able to bring him. I was able to see my friends for the, the dinner um, that we had before the prom. And, you know, I remember I called into a radio station before all that because I was trying to figure out how to tell my parents. And I was hoping for some advice. And everyone was like, you're just so brave. And I you know, it was like, okay, that's all fine and well. This is an advice, though. Uh, <laughs> and I also really didn't consider it being brave. I chose to 
know my truth. I chose to have enough respect for myself to demand respect from everyone else. And that's really what it came down to. It's not a matter of bravery. In fact, it's more a matter of survival. Mm. Because when I was so consistently in the space of denying who I was, it brought me closer and closer to suicide. And that is all too often the case for queer and trans people, right? When we are denied an ability to be ourselves, it makes it impossible to live. Yeah, it does. Denying yourself consistently makes you impossible to love. And it makes it impossible to imagine someone else loving you, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What's your relationship with with the universe? That's a you said something yeah. in the preview, um, so the folks don't have any background on this, but I am not religious. You grew up uh-huh. in the church. I did not. Yep. Um, I'm super spiritual, though, and I uh-huh. I have, I think, a healthy relationship with understanding there's something much bigger than me, and I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. You've overcome so much of this, and that doesn't mean that you don't still face struggles from all of these Absolutely. things. You are still a black, queer Gender queer neurodivergent human on this planet. Mm-hmm. So I bring up the universe because I wonder when, when those obstacles rear their ugly head, mm-hmm. what's that process mm-hmm. for you from a universal standpoint? Yeah, you know, I really have to go on a journey. When I was 14, this is the summer before we moved to Georgia, um, I went on this graduation getaway uh, for high school, high school age and, you know, going into high school age kids that were part of Student Venture, which was a Christian club group, because uh, I, I was very involved. Did you believe it the whole time? And, were you like in on Jesus? Uh, it's <laughs> sort of, laugh, right? I was always a person who had questions, okay. but mostly because that's the way my brain works. Yeah. And anytime I would ask a question that they didn't have an answer to, they would, you know, say that I was being a smart aleck. And I'm like, I'm actually genuinely asking this question. I'm not trying. But I do remember that was when I was really struggling to accept myself. And uh, there was an altar call uh, one day and I went up there and I'm just like sobbing. And all these people that I had become friends with were coming up, what's wrong? What can I pray for? I'm like, just pray for me, just pray for me, just pray for me, right? And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden everything kind of goes quiet. As I'm once again, head bowed, knee bent, begging the universal truth to make me something that I'm not. And I remember just clear as day, a voice, a feeling, something being like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're perfect the way you are. And so I have to sometimes remind myself of that. I have to go back and tap into that internal knowing of truth that despite what the world around around me may think or do or say, there is nothing wrong with me. In fact, living in that uniqueness, embracing all of that, that makes me me, helps other people do the same. It helps other people be able to know that they can step out and do those things that will provide the maximum benefit for themselves, rather than cowering to these expectations that serve no one. So... When I do have those moments, I definitely try to remember that. I try to rely on my social network. I'm a very 
sociable person. Um, you know, I had a lot of practice moving around of how to quickly make friends and also how to build deep relationships. Yeah. Um, so I know sometimes I just need to vocalize those internalized messages that still find their way to creep in. And it sometimes it's helpful to just speak those out loud and have other folks that I know and love help me repeat the the challenge to that, right? Like mm-hmm. we know that's not true though, right? The, these ideas yeah. of, oh, you're not pretty, girl, yes, you are. (laughs) And it's very helpful to have that external validation um, in uh, tandem with my own internal validation. It really becomes this uh, amplifying loop. Do you find, even given all of, of what you've just shared with us, that the universe is compassionate? You know, yes, in a way. I, I would say, I believe it's Martin Luther King um, that stated the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yeah. And justice isn't always compassionate. That is damn true. And often when we think about that long arc, perhaps it's something that you don't really see in a certain span, including in the span of your own life. When I think about the state of societal ideas around, specifically around gay, lesbian, bisexual people, right? How much that has changed even in my own lifetime is kind of crazy. I I never would have guessed in uh, 2006 when I graduated high school that I would have been able to get married to my now husband. We affectionately call each other husband. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, things do change, but sometimes maybe we're unable to see how much that change actually happens. And maybe we don't feel vindicated in our own space, in our own lifetime. I like to remind myself that, you know, if you're expecting um, to get that validation, right, you're absolutely going to have moments of disappointment. Mm -hmm. What is maybe better to focus on, at least what I found that has worked for me, is to focus on all those small little things that have enabled me to be the person that I am today and how I can intentionally pass that forward you know it was seeing other co-workers at my former employer who were trans and non-binary and genderqueer and in like management roles even right being able to actually have power and authority rather than just being a token that really allowed me to kind of step into that fullness and now I get to live bravely. It was one of the things that my AP Lit teacher said to me as I was struggling with my parents not really receiving me coming out well. And, you know, being the angsty teenager I am, having lots to say about it. Of course. I have three teenagers right (laughs) this moment. So, yeah. He said to me, well, number one, you know, I wouldn't often say this, but in your case, I will, because I've met your parents several times and Julian, they love you and they will come around. He's like, I know it sucks right now, but if there is one thing I am quite certain of, because mm-hmm. I see lots of parents with lots of students, your parents love you. That's a gift um, for someone and, else to see that and to yes. help you see that. Yes. Yeah. And he's like, what I want you to remember is just be the person that you needed right in these moments. And so I've really always taken that to heart. I want much like my mom wanting for my life, my sister life to be better. I want 
young queer and trans folks lives to be just a bit easier than it was for me and it's it's kind of funny uh when i now interact with the youth because i am more and more losing touch with language and like what chuggy and you're still uh, young okay. too <laughs> i know it's very rude um but they sometimes it's literally the look in their eyes how they light up when they see a number of queer and trans adults of various races, uh, gender identities, backgrounds, etc., that are having a full life, that are successful, and that are giving back to their community and want nothing more than to be a support and light for these kids. And to see that them light up really kind of takes my breath away. Um, and then they call me an elder and I go, well, okay, slow down. (laughs) Let me talk to you about that. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. You used it, uh, in our pre-interview back and forth, you used a word that struck me. I read the, this line over and over and over again, and I don't know if it's one you use a lot or so if you will recognize that you said it, or if it just sort of came out in the moment when you were sharing your story, you used the word opulence. You said, and the more I have allowed myself to step into the opulence of my truth, the more Mm. others around me have begun to see the same light within themselves. Yes. You know, uh, one of my favorite, well, media is one of my favorite ways of being able to learn some things. Uh, As is sometimes common with folks with ADHD, I struggle to read. Reading is very difficult for me. Um, and that's part of the reason why I like movies and films and things, because there's a lot going on for me to then be able to better maintain focus. One of my favorite ways of learning more about queer culture was finding all of these gay and queer and trans themed movies. And one of the documentaries that is referenced a lot, especially by RuPaul, is Paris is Burning. Mm-hmm. And in that documentary, there is someone who is you know, hyping up a person who is performing and states, you know, opulence, you own everything, everything is yours, right? And this is very much in uh, the black and brown queer and trans ballroom scene in 1989, right? These were spaces that we needed to create because we knew the outside world would never give us an opportunity to shine our light the way that we knew we could. And so when I take that principle, right, and think about how I can step into that fullness, right? Opulence is fullness. It is a cup that runs over, right? And that running over helps fill other cups, right? Helps the tides rise for everyone. And that's, you know, that's, that's the thing I've seen a lot. The, The more I have stepped into my truth unabashedly, even when I have those pushback moments, I've several times, uh, you know, been threatened with physical harm simply being walking down the street in my car on a bus uh, by people who are you know ignorant and that doesn't you know not to minimize the impact that that has right of course Um, of course because it that is a lot but there are also these moments where i've been true to myself, decided, no, this, this is what I want to wear. I want to wear this dress. I want to wear my hair this way. I'm going to wear these really cute heels and I'm going to put it all together. And random strangers of all 
sexualities, genders, races, etc., are like, oh my God, like, how long did it take you to know how to style yourself this way and how to just really command a room with your presence? Right. And I'm like, what? I just started doing this. <laughs> um, this is this is the, the first thing take. I always you to like do. it? <laughs> yeah, um, and that just encourages me to step that. into it more. Yeah, because I know that's what helped inspire me. Seeing people like Billy Porter. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, and I've actually met him. Oh my gosh! Uh, he remembers me now. Stop! Um, that's a yes. claim to fame. I'm here for that. Yeah, he and I went to the same college. Obviously, different years. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was back here in Pittsburgh um, directing his first film here in the city. And so I saw him a number of times over the summer, a couple of summers ago. And now every time he comes into town and I happen to run into him, he will very often be like, do you want to sit with us? And I'm like, oh, my God, yes. Um, <laughs> Can I just be close? Can I just be close? That's amazing. Yeah. I love yeah, that. It's, you know, I literally bawled. The first time I met him, I was so nervous and I was trying to avoid him because I was trying not to fangirl. And he saw me actively doing this and he beckoned <laughs> me over and I just started bawling. And I was like, you just mean so much to me. I didn't know that I could like be so femme and be black and queer and this and that. And, and strong and sexy uh, and all of it. Yeah. Right. Like, baby, I'm simply paving the way for you to do something even bigger and better. I'm like, Billy, stop it. <laughs> Don't say these things I need to hear. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, that's so fascinating and fun to hear you tell that story because from everything else you've shared, that's what you're doing for younger people that you mentor. You've turned this into your career, right? You have a yeah. full-time career building awareness around sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression as the director of training and research at a local queer nonprofit in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we, it's hard to do, I don't want to say we can't do those things if we have, don't have mentors because somebody was first, but it is right. a whole lot easier if we have people like that to say just a sliver of an idea. Yeah. Uh, one of my it's favorite. It's like, oh, I can do I this, can. right? Yeah. Yeah. People who listen to this show, you know, going on five years now have heard me quote this Lots of times, but I don't care because I love it. One of my favorite quotes ever is from Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, where he says, you cannot dream of things you've never imagined. Exactly. And I see that for you. I, I am I'm curious, what was, after the experience of coming out to your family and, and then getting really comfortable, maybe even with being uncomfortable with yourself. Um, yeah. you, you didn't use those words, but I can, I mean, I know yeah. what human nature is like, right? Sometimes we just have yeah. to go, this is awkward and, and messy and I don't know who I am or who I'm going to become, yep. but I'm going to be okay with that. Yep. What was it like coming out to your family as genderqueer? Yeah. So I was super nervous and my parents had come to visit. I was like, okay, I'm going to tell them. Oh, my God. And so they came over to my best friend's place because we have a tradition on Fridays. We call it Pizza Friday. We get together. Okay. We have pizza. We'll maybe play board games. You know, just we're nerds. It's it's fine. Um, so my parents came and they met them and I'm still freaking out. Um, and my friends are like, Joel, it is clear as day how much your parents love you. Yeah. Just tell them. So we were actually going to 
Cleveland for a family member's surprise birthday party. So when we got there the next morning, I was like, okay, we're going to do this because I want to put eyeliner on because Because you want to feel fabulous. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, they were sitting in the bed and I was like, so I have something to tell you. I'm genderqueer. And they're like, duh. Okay. Well, we're not quite sure what that means, but we love you. And I'm like, Oh my God, perfect response. (laughs) The the first thing was maybe we don't know exactly what that means, but what's more important is we love you. And we don't need to know really. You'll show us. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, of course it's, these things aren't linear, right? There are still learning curves and things like that, but they have been very consistent and doing what they can um, and making sure that they fully support my ability to show up in spaces like family events and things or I'm like Ugh, if you're expecting me to show up in a suit it's not happening right I don't feel comfortable in a suit I'm probably going to want to wear a dress or something a bit more femme um, and I need to feel comfortable and safe doing that and they really stepped into that rather quickly. My first cousins were the ones that were hysterical because each time I came out, both as gay and then as genderqueer, they're like, cousin, you act like we don't know you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, so they were the ones that like, were like, duh, like, this here. is not news. <laughs> Jewel, we haven't paying attention. Not news at all. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, yeah, all that tracks. Maybe we didn't know that language, but no, that all tracks. <laughs> I love that. And I love you know, love is, I love love. Love is important. Being loved, yes. knowing you're loved, and mm-hmm. giving love to me is mm-hmm. a foundation for any possibility. Mm-hmm. And your parents had this real struggle. You had this real struggle yeah. with them. But mm-hmm. when love is the foundation, mm-hmm. yeah, we can grow so rapidly. And so then all of those years in between this new opportunity um, they, I wonder, I don't know, maybe this is holiday dinner conversation. I, I wonder <laughs> if they were almost relieved to have another opportunity to do that again for you, yeah. it, the way you deserved for it to be done. Yeah, you know, that would be an interesting question to ask them. I know, I know that, well, I forget the name of the movie, but there is a movie on Amazon with um, Matt Damon, I think, maybe Mark Wahlberg. Mm. <laughs> All um, those- it's Buff all white the men seem the, alike. Yeah, they all yeah, look mm-hmm, alike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a, a, a based on a true story about a man who um, was going to walk across America because his son had committed suicide because he was gay and no one accepted him. And it goes through how the kid came out and how the dad responded. And so my dad was really moved by this movie. Yeah. Um, and like that's one of the ways that my dad and I communicate because we both love films. Um, and so he like insisted that my sister, mom and I sat down and watched this movie together and he would pause and he'd go, you know what the father did right here. Like I see now, like how I in some ways did that. And I am so terribly sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope you both know that everything we did, even the mistakes were through love. But we ha- also recognize those, you know, shortcomings we have. Yeah. And, you know, that's the biggest blessing I have is I can say without a doubt, even in those mistakes, that it was guided by love. Yeah. And that makes it so much easier, uh, especially when they're willing to also Apologize. understand the impact yeah, of course. that they uh, had to be able to forgive and grow uh, with them. That's so beautiful. 
Yeah. I mean, I feel like just as humans, the most we can hope is that people realize that they've caused harm, no matter what intention doesn't equal impact, no matter what their motivation was. And to say, I am aware and I am sorry, and I will do Mm -hmm. my best to do better. What? Exactly. Not much else we can want from people. Gosh, we have to get together, you and me and Pam, and I get all hang out because I think I'll be the old lady of the bunch, but that's okay. (laughs) Because with age comes zero fucks and a lot of wisdom. Um, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, though. I mean, again, we started this conversation. You absolutely glow. You are you are gorgeous and radiant, and there's something super magnetic about you. I hope you celebrate that. How do you like to celebrate? You know, I would say it's just spending time with my loved ones. Yeah. That is a thing that is a really great source of recharging for me as well. I, I know that I can be pretty empathic, um, so it's really important for me to be choosy and mm. who I share space with. And I think we should all do that. Absolutely. Right? It's a it's a matter of really self-respect <laughs> um, as well as, you know, when we're thinking about what I was saying earlier about the um, this loop that uh, amplifies. Yeah. Right? If you want that positive energy, that affirmation, that respect, you have to surround yourself with people yeah. that also have that in mind. And that doesn't mean they're exactly like you. My friends and I are not. <laughs> at all exactly I mean, that would be like. so boring, wouldn't it? If everybody well, was yes. exactly the same, who's going to uh, bring the fire? Clearly it's you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that's how I, I like to celebrate is just enjoying that space and time with them. I love that. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, I love that question. Celebration is a huge component of, of my life, of my work as a coach. Mm-hmm. And I love mm-hmm. sharing with listeners the different ways all of us bring celebration into our life because the more we celebrate, the more we have to celebrate. Absolutely. And people go, oh, I don't do that. And A, mm-hmm. I think they probably do and they don't, they just don't identify it as such, but there's something really powerful in that mm-hmm. and fits along with the in identification of all of the things that make us who we are and what we do. So I love that. Joel, what is your favorite charitable organization to support? Um, Shameless plug. I mean, bring Uh, it. The one I work for. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, So uh, the Hugh Lang Wellness Foundation um, was founded in 2017, and we are focused on improving the wellness and well-being of the LGBTQ plus and HIV positive communities in Western PA and beyond. So those trainings and consultations that I give, while yes, are mostly centered in Western PA, I have given trainings and consultations internationally as well um, and uh, across the country. And to me, what's most important, again, is finding ways to provide that support that is unfortunately so lacking, especially in the current political climate, um, where especially transgender and gender expansive folks' rights access, et cetera, is so much under attack. So much. That's awesome. Well, they will be our charity of the week. So we'll give them some love. Uh, Folks who listen, who are listening right now, this is what I ask of you every time we come together. You know, we have the power collectively to change 
the world and to change our communities. And so whatever it is that you can give, if it's social media likes, if it's shares, if it's time, if it's money, if it's recommending the service to somebody else, whatever it is, keep the organization in mind, the Healing Wellness Foundation, and do what you can. You know, I, we we need to wrap up this conversation because we have this timeline situation going on right now. Yep. But you said something, and I had, um, I'm going to call it a download. I'm a, I'm a spiritual empath as well, talking about the current political climate and really how dangerous it is, not just yeah. to be queer, but to be trans and non-binary. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that, that there, it gets worse right before we have an actual big breakthrough, like before something's going to really make a difference and get better. Is it, do we think maybe they're so fucking afraid? They're so afraid of losing power or of not having control that it's coming to a head and that we're, we're going to get to the other side of this mountain. Like we're getting close and maybe that's why it's so awful. I don't know, man. I'm I'm tired of thinking that we're like just totally fucked. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, I, it's kind of, maybe a little bit of both because you can see it on both ends, Mm -hmm. right? When we, even thinking about the civil rights movement, um, this isn't just something that happened in the sixties, right? We have to remember that when uh, the slaves were freed, at least black men, uh, in theory should have been able to vote. And they did during the reconstruction period, but then under Jim Crow, right? There's this backlash, this this return of, no, you can't have access to this. And I think that's kind of where we are right now. And, Perhaps, yes, it does lead up to a moment um, like the 60s um, where we do gain a little bit more ground. But there's always this ebb and flow. Yeah. Right. And all I hope is that this is a pendulum that continues to move forward. Right. Even if there is a bit of backtrack, but it definitely does feel the thing that is so dismaying is how dangerously similar our current trajectory is related to pre-World War II Nazi Germany. Absolutely especially in the specific attacks against uh, transgender folks. Um, so, Oof. but okay. I, I, I always, I, I am part realist, but also fully an idealist. So even though I'm looking at this world and going, wow, we might seriously be fucked. I always say to myself, so what? Right. Just like I did when I was in high school, like no one was supporting me being gay and um, including most of the administration. Definitely. People did not like the fact that I was black and outspoken, Um, But why should I care? I still deserve to have this self-respect to be able to define who I am for myself and stand up for myself in those spaces and really to allow a little bit of grace, not only, well, most importantly, I would say for myself as I continue to grow and better understand and learn how to maybe better do things in that way, but also to allow some grace for the folks around me, just like I had to for my parents. Right. They needed to, as my AP Lit teacher told me, it's like, you know, it took you a while to accept the fact that you were gay. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, he's like, well, I think you're going to have to give them a little bit of time to give them a little bit of grace, give them some space to grow, to catch up, to be able to get back on that same track and path with you. That's beautiful. I love that. And I'm with you. Like, okay, maybe that's so. So what? We do, we do, we do it anyway. We I'll show fight up anyway. in all of, mm-hmm. all of your opulence. I love it. Would, Joel, would you share your three words with us one last time, please? Absolutely. Respect, autonomy, and grace. Yeah. I, I have seen them all. I mean, it's, they're beautiful words and 
I, I I honor them all. The respect I think is is so all inclusive. It's so three sixty itself. It's others respecting people's journeys along the process, and mm-hmm. um, and yet who cares? Autonomy, like it doesn't matter. It doesn't define me. I'm going to define me. And I'm particularly fond of the word grace. As somebody who did not grow up in the church, folks go, "Well, isn't that a church thing?" And I said, "I don't mm. think so. Grace is just a." just a human thing. Like we have to give ourselves grace because if we can't, we're not going to get it from anyone else. That part. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. I just adore you. How can folks find you there? You, you have this beautiful presence online, not just your organization. So how can people get more of your opulence? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think Instagram is probably the thing that I keep up to date the most, which is at ZZemZier. So that's X-E-X-E-M-X-Y-R. And also welcome to check out my LinkedIn, which I believe is under Jarney, J-A-R-N-E-Y. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking this time with me and sharing. I mean, you're just fabulous. You are magnificent. And I feel really honored to have been in your presence here for the last hour. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right, folks. Thank you so much for being here with us right now. I am so moved and so honored that I got to spend this time with Jewel. What a magnificent human being. I hope you all feel as hopeful and lit up as I do. If you like this episode and you enjoy the podcast, I ask you to do me a favor. You can visit wherever you enjoy listening podcasts, wherever you're listening right now, and rate and review the show. It means a lot, and it really does help other people find us. And if you love the work that I'm out here doing, you can say thank you. It's really simple. You can go to vickeryandco.com slash say thanks, and you can buy me a coffee. You can contribute in whatever way you feel is appropriate for the enjoyment or education or inspiration that you have received from any of the free content that I'm putting out. Thank you so much for spending time here with us today. Until we get a chance to connect again, I'm Heather Vickery reminding you today and every single day to go out and choose bravely. Bye now. You've been listening to The Brave Files, stories of people living courageously. Visit us at thebravefilespodcast.com to learn more about the show, find our show notes, and access full episode transcripts. And we'd love to know what you think of the show. We invite you to connect with us via Instagram and send a DM. You'll find us at The Brave Files Podcast on Instagram. Our music was created and produced in a custom collaboration with Matt Lewis from ML Creative Consulting a boutique firm dedicated to helping clients identify their unique sound and amplify their brand with custom-delivered soundtracks. Special thanks to everyone on Team Brave, from our audio engineer to our producers, associate producers, copy editors, writers, and support team. The show wouldn't exist without them, and we are eternally grateful. I'm your host and executive producer, Heather Vickery. Thanks for tuning in.